0: Was I talking to you? Was I talking to you? No. Please, keep your mouth shut if I'm not talking
1: to you. Please, if I'm not talking to you, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> On that note, welcome to our US Open rap episode called Bubble Wrap Women Save the Day. This is The Body Surf. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. We I reversed that, so you had to think
0: about I what did. your name it was. It took me a second. Upon listening to Patricia Maria Tzig's rant,
1: in Istanbul, a tournament running concurrently with the U.S. Open in the second week, this was just way too good to leave out of the episode.
0: I realized that she created verse. So it's a quatrain. She says, am I talking to you? Beat. Am I talking to you? Please keep your mouth shut if I'm not talking to you. So it's an A-A-B-A rhyme scheme. Mm -hmm. But she she actually
1: wrote a, a chorus. And for me, you present that as if it's making this event even more special and for me you're sucking the joy out of it oh no like i don't want to think that much about it i just want to revel and enjoy it because this is something that we can all use hourly in our daily
0: lives Mm -hmm. it feels very new york was i talking to you um i just i'm in awe that she literally wrote poetry in (laughs) a rant to the
1: umpire and her opponent i just want to i just want to use it on twitter all day The other half of this episode, title, Women Save the Day, is taken from Mariah's new song, Save the Day, which the video was premiered ahead of the US Open Women's final. This was such an immaculate conception for me. It, it was the perfect collaboration. It's what I've been waiting for my whole life, Mariah, to be such a huge part of this massive tennis event. And... For the second time in Mariah Carey history, Venus and Serena Williams featured in a Mariah music video. The first one being 1999's Can't Take That Away, parentheses Mariah's Theme, where Mariah is seen looking at a wall of TVs with all these inspirational moments happening, and you see Venus and Serena appear, and there's a a caption talking about them being born in Compton and overcoming that to become tennis champions. So that's that's my little bit of history for this episode.
0: And it turns out so many of our great divas are tennis fans. at Avid tennis fans. Aretha at- Franklin, of course, who loved Yvonne
1: Goolagong more than anyone. Gladys Knight has attended the US Open and the Charleston event many, many times. Mm-hmm. Huge fan. She is an Atlanta girl. She grew up down near Charleston. Anita Baker spent the entire two weeks reveling in the women's tournament. To be clear, she was not watching the men. (laughs) (laughs) From her Twitter output. But she was
0: giving us the best that she's got. Well, look what you did there. She is the next generation, though. We've lost Aretha, and Miss Baker is here to step in. But Gladys Knight is as much a fixture at the U.S. Open as former Mayor David Dinkins. And
1: she really knows her tennis. So will Mariah step in? I can't let this moment pass without pushing back at some of the ridicule and the hate that I saw for miscarrying on the internets when this thing happened. People describing uh, the video as weird, like- tacky, especially the end of it, where she dons a mask. She literally says, as a song winds down, we gon' learn. And she says, we gon' learn to save the day. In the song, we gon' learn to wear a fucking mask. <laughs> That's what she's saying. What is tacky about that? In the middle of a pandemic, we have Mariah imploring you to wear a mask. I felt that the mask was
0: one of the more normal things about the performance. It was very Mariah, the whole thing. The
1: entire thing was typical Mariah Fair. But if you
0: don't understand that there is always humor wrapped up into it, then you're, you're missing the point.
1: There have been at least six Mariah music videos featuring a vehicle. Prominently,
0: mm-hmm. with a long gown with a cutout somewhere in the
1: torso. <laughs> if Mariah Carey were riding around the Billie Jean King Tennis Center on a unicorn,
0: it would be on brand.
1: With her tresses blowing in the wind, that would be on brand. <laughs> like, I just don't understand. Like, this woman has been dressing that way since she was 27 years old. To me, that was weird. Wearing gowns at 27. <laughs> As a superstar in the 90s. That that was weird. Now it isn't. <laughs> so, uh, at this point, if you do not get Mariah Carey, just sit there, eat your food. That, that, mm. It's fine. Just this stay is, out of it. This is not 2001, people. Mariah's cool again. Did you not get the memo? We got an uplifting moment. Did you listen to the lyrics? Very appropriate <laughs> oh, for this Oh, we're still talking about the song? Yes. I'm, I was so ticked off about it. Like, I did not let it ruin my moment when it happened. And it wasn't until I was getting ready to go to bed, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to let this slide. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and another thing. <laughs> exactly. That was a lot of these last two weeks. And another thing. Mm. Okay. So this US
0: Open. First, I want to say this tournament went off in a very difficult time without a lot of major issues. It seemed to have been executed fairly safely, despite... You know, a lot of eyebrow raising from us and from many in the media. And
1: I just, I have to give credit where it's due. I'm not in that space okay. because I think there's still a lot of merit to thinking it shouldn't have happened in the first place. Sure. There could have been a lot of luck involved in it coming off well. Like that stuff could have exploded with the cases after the Benoit pair stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That in itself was a lot of luck. I'm just saying, I'm not mm. here, and I've seen it a lot on social media, to say, oh, well, I gotta say, gotta give them credit. No, I actually don't have to give them credit. You don't. You don't. I don't. Like, they I'm... had bills to pay. They were able to pay them. Folks were able to win a title. Other folks were able to have jobs during this, this time. Great. But, like, I, I still don't know if it was the right thing to do. Right.
0: But I think what we saw with the the news that we've been privy to is kind of the best-case scenario,
1: yeah, absolutely. Right? Okay. That's it, went, it went well. Overall, it went well. I'm just saying, I'm not here to like, give out medals right now.
0: Okay. And also, this is not to say that the people who stayed home were wrong. Like, Absolutely you know, not. No criticism of people who decided
1: not to come, or the people who decided to come. Like, I saw um, some folks talking about, I wonder what the folks are thinking who decided not to come. Like, no.
0: I don't think that's an indictment of anyone. They made the decision that was right for them,
1: and who are we to to judge that? We have two champions, the two expected champions after last week's episode. Once Djokovic removed himself from the tournament, Dominic Team became the presumptive favorite alongside Daniil Medvedev. Dominic Team prevailed. We'll get to that later. And Naomi Osaka is your women's champion now, three-time. Slam champion, and two-time US Open champion. You have a little annotation Mm -hmm. here on the agenda. I've been taking a lot of knocks lately, mostly self-inflicted because
0: I've made some horrendous predictions. And this is typically why we avoid making predictions. But, you know, we did sort of a semi-eulogy of Vika Azarenka's career as a major winner or a, a contender for majors about three weeks ago. And she has proven us wrong many times since then, and I'm so pleased about that, but I actually have been right about a few things lately, and I just kind of want to gloat for a moment. I felt very strongly that Naomi Osaka was going to come back after that horrendous first set against Vika and win the match, and I tweeted about it. I have proof. I also felt that Alexander Zverev was not going to go meekly after losing the first two sets against Pablo Cariño Busta. Those are the, the two things that I, I feel so proud
1: that I was right about. They're minor things. I would say that's pretty big. <laughs> I was going over the agenda last night and I saw that you had added this right at the top. With the first, <laughs> the first few words being James being very right about a few things. That immediately caught my attention and then I read it and then I had to add an addendum mm, right okay. below. And I wrote, but also, Jonathan was the one who actually... Picked Naomi to win on the last episode. That's true. I
0: picked Jennifer Brady, and as you know, I'm always happy to admit
1: when I was wrong. Also, I picked Felix Oje Eliasim to win the men's title, mm-hmm. and that was an abominable pick well, as it I turned mean, out.
0: You could have been wronger. Well, no, actually, you couldn't have at that stage. He lost almost immediately after you predicted. Yeah, that. Mm-hmm. it
1: was. But, uh, it was. Not a good look for me.
0: You know what? It happens. I goaded us into making predictions, and
1: and that's what happens sometimes. Instead of dealing with the men's and women's recap, like we've done in the past, where we talk about the final and then move backward, we're going to tell a more linear story this time, where we pick up from the quarterfinals and lead into the final on each side. We're going to start with the women. We got a group of eight that
0: made so much sense, and in some ways didn't make any sense because we got shockers like Parankova coming back from three years away from the tour, her first tournament back, and and beating top players. We got Putintseva, Shelby Rogers. But I would say, you know, this final group really reflected the people who were playing the best throughout the tournament. And in large part, the people
1: who have been playing well for the past few weeks in Kentucky, in Cincinnati. Jennifer Brady played Putintseva, and it really was an a Mortal kind of way, a flawless victory.
0: A Mortal Kombat? Like, finish her?
1: Flawless victory.
0: Oh, is that a thing?
1: Yeah. I haven't At played the this end, game since I was like nine. When when the person has been decimated, I'm not here advocating for all this violence in mm. video games because it's it's not it's not cute. But once the person has been defeated, flawless victory flashes across the, the screen amidst oh, all they, the carnage. Okay, I remember.
0: Yeah. Putinsova didn't even have time to get into the normal theatrics of her matches brady just
1: dominated her naomi osaka played shelby rogers and in this match naomi looked like she was on a mission previously we talked about being concerned about the state of her hamstring naomi was a little bit uh, cagey about it as is her <laughs> her right and her want leading up to this point and so we didn't really know what to expect perhaps naomi herself didn't know what to expect having had pulled out of the Cincinnati final because of it the week before, two weeks before.
0: Mm-hmm. But her match against Rogers, who was on a hot streak, was a fairly straightforward 6-3, 6-4 victory. Now, what was not straightforward was Serena Williams' victory over Svetlana Peronkova, Serena losing the first set 6-4, and staging this comeback 6-3,
1: 6-2. 20 aces from Serena in this match. Something that's kind of lost in the storytelling of this event is that I believe Serena tied her tournament record for aces with 70 that she set when she was 17 years old, about to turn 18 years old in 1999 when she won the tournament. Mm -hmm. And she played one less match
0: in this tournament. She didn't make the final, so she did that in six matches. This match was, uh, I mean, you saw again, like in the Sakari match, Serena was lethargic in the first set, and against that sort of stabbing forehand slice that Perankova does... Serena was very uncomfortable in the first set. She definitely had to sit down, think about it, and get her head in the game. Also, Perankova was not missing. Right. At all. Elisa Mattens and Vika Azarenka.
1: It's not exactly the scoreline I expected between the two. Vika hit every line and most of them down the line. It was, it was a bloodbath. It, Vika lost a single game in that match. And this is the point where you realize not only was Cincinnati not a fluke, but Vika is absolutely a favorite for this title. Because Mertens
0: has made a bunch of second weeks over the past few years. She's been super consistent, has beaten players ranked higher than her. She's not like a pushover in a draw. But, I mean, Vika barely noticed her. On to the semis. This is when people said, wow, Big Babe Tennis is back. Right, we get Brady, Osaka, Serena, and Vika. This is a, the tennis looks different than it has recently. It's just a totally different style. And you did, you know, you had a lot of these top players who didn't come, who play a different style, like Bencic, Halep, Svitolina, did
1: not make the trip. Well, this is direct shade at them. Folks like yourself and the folks lauding this return of big babe tennis, it's it's a shunning of that necessarily well
0: no i'm just saying this is the tennis that i happen to like but it's clear that this was a different style being played it may not be your favorite you know there may be plenty of fans of those players who were like this is just not for me which is fine but i would say this final four was a departure from what we've seen recently Mm -hmm. this was your happy place (laughs) i love power tennis on the women's side because i I like to push back at you know, this brainless ball bashing stereotype because there's a lot of ball bashing and there's actually a lot of brains going on at the same time. Brainful ball bashing. <laughs> yes. Jennifer Brady versus Naomi Osaka. This match was a big question mark for me. I felt it could
1: have go what either way. What do you mean question the mark? You picked Jennifer Brady to win the tournament.
0: Well, but seeing the kind of form that Naomi was in oh. over Rogers.
1: Oh, I see. After In the quarterfinals. That finals, one match changed your, changed yes, your mind. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You set yourself up for this with your big proclamation at the start of this episode. Because you know I am... I'm, I'm I'm a petty, petty person. Yes. Naomi says that this was one of probably the three best matches that she's ever played. Pulling it out in three sets. In the other semi-final, Serena plays Azarenko. Now, leading up to this match, a lot of Serena's fans were kind of fearful <laughs> of, of Vika in this match. But... Not because of their head-to-head, because Serena squarely leads that head-to-head. And at that point, Azarenka had never beaten Serena in a Grand Slam. But coming off of the complete beatdown of Mertens in the quarterfinals, and the fact that Serena has shown a propensity to start slowly at this event, and not really show her best form, it could have gone either way. The match starts, and in the blink of an eye, Serena has raced to a 6-1 lead. I mean, this set was over and done with in no time. And then it was like, okay, this is, this could, this feels like it could be something different, like an actual tonal shift in, in Serena's trajectory here. That said, at the end of the first set, you could see Azarenka physically trying to will herself to better play, changing her energy, pumping herself up, hitting herself on the thigh. And at the start of the second set, Azarenka holds... A very long service game. And it's it's difficult to, to say for sure, but watching it, it's almost like you were watching the potential for a serious momentum shift. Didn't you get that impression in yeah. real time?
0: No, I felt I felt something shift immediately when Serena didn't break Vika early in the second.
1: Serena's level dropped a bit, and Vika just maintained that level throughout the rest of the next two sets, winning 1-6-6-3-6-3 six, six, three, six, three, as it turned out. The exact scoreline that she lost to Osaka in the final. Right. And it was eerily similar to the final because
0: in the final, Naomi had nothing for Vika in the first set. Like the semifinal, Serena could do no wrong in the first set. Vika had nothing going on. Her, I mean, normal rally shots were going long. It was so ugly. But Vika's not a player who you can count out at any moment. She's such a great competitor. She showed that in both of her US Open finals against Serena, losing both of them. But, you know, Serena is 39 in two weeks. This this matchup is still super exciting, but it's different.
1: Folks keep talking about Serena like we should expect her to do things like she did in 2007, where she comes back from months away and wins the Australian Open ranked, what, 81 or something like that? This... This ability that she spoiled tennis with over the years is simply not something that we should expect from a a soon-to-be 39-year-old coming off a five-month hiatus due to a global pandemic. Mm. It's just not reasonable. And it's not like Serena played a blitzing first set and then went away. She was still there and still playing well, just not as well as she had before. To expect her to maintain the level that she showed in the first set is just absurd. It just makes Mm. no sense.
0: What's interesting though is that Serena has been excellent in semifinals for the most part since she's come back. Like, if she, if she has reached the final at a tournament, like last year's US Open, where she beats Fidelina, uh, last year's Wimbledon, where she beats Streetsova, her level in semifinals is very, very high. Those were easy wins for her. But this was different. Like, she was facing someone who knew her extremely well, who has played her tight. Their head to head is lopsided in. Serena's favorite, but if Vika is playing some of the best tennis of her past, I don't know, seven, eight years, Serena is not. Unincum- we know this.
1: Unencumbered right? tennis, a new lease yeah. on life tennis.
0: Serena is a great competitor, and as we can see very clearly, she's still capable of excellence, which we saw in the first set there. But if Vika is playing her very best, that's a big problem for Serena, who played vika tight even back when they were both at a seriously high level
1: but there's also always a correlation between how well somebody's playing and how poorly somebody's playing serena was playing lights out tennis she was a great reason why that happened but also it was able to snowball because of how badly vika was playing yeah yeah you know so to, to to expect vika to not raise her level or to make a dent in serena's level It's nonsensical when we're talking about a two-time Slam champion and somebody who's shown that grit throughout her entire career. Mm. So on to the
0: final. You all know what happened. Naomi Osaka won her second U.S. Open title in three years, her third major. She's 22 years old, and it feels like the sky's the limit for her. She's an excellent competitor on the stage. Her only titles are three majors, Indian Wells, and then the premier mandatory
1: China Open, And the Pan-Pacific Open. That's it. Six titles. She's also only advanced to the second week of a slam three times. All three times she's won the tournament. (laughs) So she's never once made it to the quarterfinals and not
0: won Mm -hmm. the tournament. Now, that's three times. Leading into this match, it was so intriguing because Vika, it seemed this would be uh, the culmination of this incredible comeback. Naomi is such a difficult big match player... She had been coming into herself as a grown woman. She's been extremely vocal about racial injustice and police violence over the past year. You know, the match had everything from a really shallow perspective. From a marketing perspective, it had everything you could possibly want.
1: And then the first set was a dud. Oh my god. In terms of the score, Victoria Azarenka was playing out of her mind. She was hitting every corner, every line, and... She was dictating the pace at which the match was being played. The match was slipping away from Naomi, not just in score, but in in pace. And that's not something you want to do or allow to happen when things are not going your way. You need to regroup and wheel and come again. But how can you do that when the other person is literally speeding away with the match? Right. I I mean, Vika was just relentless. She was killing Naomi
0: with the forehand, which was crazy. Like, This is how high her level was. Vika's most consistent, most reliable shot is that down-the-line backhand. And she was dusting Naomi with her forehand as well. Like, any
1: extended rally went Vika's way. And also not missing first serves. There was Mm -hmm. nothing she wasn't doing right (laughs) right in that first set. And again, you felt like if Naomi could get her
0: teeth in the match, she could make something happen.
1: And just like the semifinal against Serena, Victoria slipped just a little bit. Right at the start of that second set, in the middle of that second set, and then we had a match in our hands. In that third set, it looked like Naomi was going to run away with it, when it's 6-1. Vika was able to break back and, and make it 6-3. Again, if you thought that she was just going to go away or not give her all in that moment to try and make something happen, you haven't been paying attention. In the end, though, that final game, that final point... Naomi's defense was able to overcome some incredible shot-making and line-finding and corner-finding and moving Naomi all over the court before Vika finally netted her ground stroke. It was not the best competitive first set, but there was still a lot of great tennis on offer throughout. Vika on her own in the first set and then Naomi resting momentum, I believe, Vika won 8 of the first 9 games, and then Naomi won 10 of the next 12. But even still, there was quality tennis in between. And those two momentum stretches, Vika's first stretch of 8 of 9 and then Naomi's 10 of 12, that takes us to 4-1 Naomi up in the third set. And that's where I think the real action, like the best action of the match happened, that final stretch.
0: Yeah, we did finally get to a place where I felt that both players were at a very high level. It's something that we never quite captured in the men's final, right? In the men's final, there were stretches where Alexander Zverev was damn near impeccable, but I don't know that they both played at an excellent level at the same
1: time, ever. Let's say a few words about Victoria Azarenka here, because a lot of the narrative surrounding her performance and Serena's play... And Perankova making the quarterfinals has been wrapped up in this mom stuff, (laughs) which we'll get to later. Yes, have you heard? But importantly, Vika has told us specifically some of the changes that she's made within herself to get to this point. She started her U.S. Open run with a loss, a pretty weak loss to Venus Williams in the first run of Kentucky. And then she went unbeaten until this final, winning Cincinnati and then making the U.S. Open final. A result that, well, two results that neither of us or damn near anybody would have seen coming. And something that Vika's has told us is that she let go of her ego. Mm. A lot yeah. of what she was struggling with was dealing with the, the Vika that was expected of her based on her former life, really, as a Grand Slam champion. And then having to, to grow up and live through some things off the court, she was able to let go of that and come back as a different person emotionally and spiritually
0: because of who vika is we know more about those off-court struggles than we should really the custody battle she's been through some shit and she's not afraid to talk about it at this point you just get the sense that vika is a grown woman she's changed and she's always been honest and blunt sometimes too blunt for the tennis media but this is who she is. Vika does not follow a script
1: very well. She's going to tell you her opinion. You may not like it. When you present her with this narrative of being a mom and you want her to, to wax poetic about how being a mom is the reason why she's playing well, she's like, no, I'm a mom off the court. And when I'm on the court, I'm a tennis player. And I'm playing well because I'm a tennis player, not because I'm a mom. ESPN put together this little package about Vika.
0: I think it was before her semi-final. And clearly, she was supposed to kind of follow the the interviewer's cues about what it's like being a mom and coming back to tennis. And she said, I don't want people to identify us just as moms. You know, we're tennis players. We're women with passion and dreams. That was it. Like, it was so concise. It wasn't a brush off, but it was reminding all of us that, yeah, being a mom is, is great. And it's difficult. And... It requires so many sacrifices, but I don't want that to be all of what I am. You know, we are still adults, women with dreams, with things we want to accomplish, and we
1: are also mothers, like millions and billions of women around the world. One of the best parts about this US Open, and especially on the women's side, well, only on the women's side, is how a select few have pushed back at these narratives. It's so easy and lazy To identify these narratives and then expect the players to do the work for you in keeping them alive. Like, this did not happen. It didn't happen with Victoria Zarenka. It did not happen with Naomi Osaka and the Seven Masks after she won that tournament with Tom Rinaldi.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that later. But I just found so much has been said about Vika's career turnaround over the past few weeks. We've said it. But there's something so refreshing about a woman who says... On court, I didn't like playing tennis. I never liked playing tennis back when she was number one. It wasn't a fun endeavor for her. And clearly she has found the joy on the tennis court now, maybe for the first time. And she also said that she no longer needs this kind of external recognition or gratification for what she does in any endeavor. And when Vika says it, I believe it, right? It never feels
1: like talking points. When, when Vika says something. When they ask her, how do you deal with the expectations now that you're playing well? She's like, well, what expectations? I just want to be on the court and be able to smile genuinely. And I'm able to do that. The expectations are on you. That's what she's saying. <laughs> what right, did like that's you, a you problem. What did you get from the, the Seven Masks, Tom Rinaldi? Mm. So during the final, I felt that all
0: of those things... The fact that Vika had found this joy in tennis again and that she had a confidence that felt so internally driven, that that was very dangerous. And that could, even against a competitor like Naomi, could will her
1: to this victory. That said, Naomi has told us that the thing that she's worked on for this event is her attitude Mm -hmm. to stay calm. In previous events, a bad attitude could have made this a runaway train for Vika. But when you saw that even throughout that 6-1 lopsided first set and the, the tussle of the opening bits of that second set, Naomi was maintaining her calm and her good disposition, you felt that a turnaround wasn't that far around the corner. Yeah, there were some people, even myself, I was like, will Naomi
0: scream or smash a racket or something? Because there they just felt like a little bit of a lack of energy on her side. And then I had to remind myself, that's not her. Like, that's not the sort of thing that gets her engaged, right? That's my projection. That's maybe what Serena should do if she's not feeling 100% focused. But Naomi's going to find a way in her own quieter style.
1: She showed up at this event after withdrawing from the Cincinnati semifinal, starting this conversation in tennis in this current climate. She didn't play that match or wasn't going to play that match because she said, I need to take a step back and bring attention to this. The tennis world took a minute, took a pause, took a day off in Cincinnati, and she decided to play that semifinal. She gets to the U.S. Open tournament and shows up for her first match with a mask, with Brianna Taylor's name on her mask. And let us know that for each round, she came prepared with a mask with the name of somebody on it who's been killed by police violence or in Ahmad Arbery's case, at the hands of racist violence. And that kind of set the stage for a lot of pressure on Naomi, frankly. right. And in the end, she brought seven masks, she wore seven masks, and she won the tournament.
0: And for the most part, she let her silent act of protest do most of the talking. She's been a leader in this sport for the past few months, but now by, by making this statement at the U.S. Open, she does bear some pressure for, for not only playing seven matches but sort of being able to be that symbol internationally because this is such a big stage and being able to articulate exactly what she wants as far as what this protest is supposed to mean because if not people will articulate it for her you know and and we saw that the espn commentariat was in many ways
1: ill-equipped to do that to step in and tell the story she's telling you that i'm protesting because of black people being murdered And ESPN codes that as Naomi protesting against social injustice. Mm -hmm. So this term was used so widely that I'm convinced that it was handed
0: down on a a list of talking points. There's no way that everyone could have agreed independently to use the term social injustice. I don't know what that means. I know what social justice means. But this is a very specific protest targeting a very specific problem. Anti-black racism... Police violence against black people and the systemic problems that have caused it to flourish over the past
1: 300, 400 years. And with everything that's happened since March, with everything that Naomi has done, with giving you the seven names, being so specific about it being about black people being murdered, this was a choice. She's given you permission to call it racism, to call it protesting Black people being murdered, and yet you choose to make it either comfortable for yourself to say or comfortable for your listeners to receive.
0: Yeah, it, it was just, it was weird because there was a lot unspoken. And I don't, know, I don't know, I kind of wonder how much the average white person watching understood about the protest. Probably much more than uh,
1: ESPN was giving them credit for. At this point, Yes. Even the folks who are completely in disagreement with it understand what it's about. Mm. And so I'm, I'm left grappling with a couple things stemming from this. Because uh, some folks have been questioning the, the effectiveness of Naomi's protest. What do names on a mask do in effect? And then also, I've seen this thing where a lot of white people now feel it's their duty or feel emboldened to insert themselves and question, well, what, what is the efficacy of this? What are you doing? Well, what is that person doing? We saw it with Cindy Schmurler of the New York Times. And this is part of a larger segment that we'll get to about how uniformly abysmal the coverage of this tournament was by the folks involved across the board. Asking Naomi if she feels that Serena has done enough For this movement.
0: It was right. The question was whether she was surprised if Serena hasn't been more vocal in the past few weeks or months about Black Lives Matter. And there are a lot of things wrong with the question. First of all, why are you asking, basically, why are you in Black people's business? Why are you asking a Black woman to comment on the level of another Black woman's activism? Why are you. Presuming by the question that Black Lives Matter is something new, yeah, very important, uh, that, as if this movement started in March, right? And so, you know, I wanted to get into the weeds and say, well, Serena's done this, 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 and I actually don't want to do that because I don't want to justify the very asking of the question, right? But it's then, in a,
1: it's not appropriate. It's not appropriate, but it's important in the context of this being new in tennis, these conversations being new and actually being addressed in tennis. Because for well over a decade, people questioned whether Serena and Venus's decision to boycott Indian Wells was legitimate. Mm-hmm. Nobody was talking about that as legitimate anti-Black bias, as racism. But now that we've been given permission to address this in tennis, we're going to pretend like that didn't happen? Right? Like Serena didn't return to Indian Wells and tether that with her support of the Equal Justice Initiative. Like, that is so myopic and offensive, frankly. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, since May of 2020, it
0: is now acceptable for white journalists to recognize a global movement against anti-Black racism, right? Like, these movements have been happening for decades, centuries, (laughs) but now that Black Lives Matter is a hashtag and it's exploded across the United States, now it's like, what did this black athlete tweet over the past month? And why is it unsatisfactory to you? Like, that's what the question is about, right? It's just the the tenor of someone's activism has, what, not satisfied
1: you or has passed you by? Maybe you didn't notice it because you Mm. haven't been paying attention. Uh, Or you don't want to acknowledge it because then it calls into question your complicity in not having this be an issue that's at the forefront for so long. And so I think this is something
0: that can make TV commentary especially better is that maybe the on-air talent that we have now can learn. They can come up to speed, but it takes some acknowledgement of guilt. And it takes it takes the acknowledgement of all of these things that I may have been ignorant of for many years. And I myself do that all the time. It's a necessary exercise in anti-racist
1: work. I keep coming back to what Naomi has done and uh, Coco Goff as well in the last few months as giving tennis permission to talk about these things. Naomi says that she wants to start the conversation and on a very base level, it seems so small, like it's not really doing much, but we have to remember that this is tennis. Yeah. This, this, <laughs> this is tennis. And now that permission has been granted as stupid as that sounds, for us to be having these conversations. It is so defeating to me that the coverage of this event was so poor.
0: Mm.
1: That Naomi's decision to wear those seven masks and be able to wear those seven masks because she won the matches. That the US Open created murals, had displays inside Arthur Ashe of some of these victims of police killings that were not even spoken about. What like... I watched a lot of tennis, and I wanted to know
0: who were the artists who created those portraits behind the, the players, right? Like, there, there are all these beautiful artistic works in the stadium. Who did that? What does it mean? What do all these banners mean? Corday was wearing a shirt that said, defund the police, and the network tried... I mean, jumped through hoops to avoid showing what was written on a shirt. That would have been an opportunity to say, well, you may not agree with it, but here's what's on the shirt. Here's how it relates to what Naomi is advocating for.
1: And this is where I am with the state of the tennis commentariat. It's not enough in the wake of everything that's happened to just read some books, to then be performative about your own feelings and interactions With this stuff. Because I'm not here for folks trying to go down the the road of Naomi's activism being somewhat performative and not effective. I want to know why the folks commentating on tennis cannot engage with that material in a meaningful way. Why is their reaction and commentary itself just performative? It's just retweeting a few things, it's saying social. Injustice without actually getting to the root of what we're talking about. Reading books is not enough. What it boils down to for me, if you have this moment where Naomi is doing all this stuff, to my mind giving you permission to talk about this stuff in a in a meaningful way, pulling out from the Cincinnati semifinal, wearing the masks, it says to me that your failure to do so or engage with it in any meaningful way shows that you are not here at this moment up to scratch. You, you cannot meet this moment. It's it's really never been easier for you to meet this moment. It also puts into to relief that we need desperately more diverse voices. We can't have people who are afraid to say the wrong thing because they'll be pilloried on social media. Folks who can't even decipher what is acceptable from what is not acceptable to say about this stuff. Because they... <laughs> the reality of it is that they have no even tangential interaction with what this is like for Black folks on a daily basis. The complete failure, abject failure, to meet this moment lets me believe that that this just has to be torn all the way down and started all over again.
0: Because you're not going to fix it just by hiring James Blake and Alexandra Stevenson. That's not going to do it.
1: And when I say folks didn't meet the moment, there's some specific incidents.
0: <laughs> Tom Rinaldi in the... Trophy presentation. First of all, why is the U.S. Open still doing a Q&A? Let the people talk and let us move on with our lives. Because I'll tell you, after this, they're probably not doing a Q&A ever again.
1: Also, <laughs> also, they didn't do one for Victoria Azarenka. No, only They only did only it for Naomi.
0: Winner. Only the winner. And Naomi embarrassed Tom Rinaldi. So I'm guessing this is not
1: going to be a feature in the 2021 U.S. Open. When has... Tom Rinaldi not embarrassed himself well, in the last you know, couple years asked, in these settings.
0: The thing is, he asks a lazy question, seven masks, seven matches. What does it mean? Like, Naomi has been telling you what it means ad nauseum. And so her response was, what was the message you got? She took a quick pause and then kept going, let him off the hook a little bit. But this is so important because she's been here, right? She's been out here telling you what it means. She's been encouraging you all to talk. She's been challenging you to talk about these issues. You've largely failed. And she asked you on an international stage, what was the message you got,
1: Tom Rinaldi? It shows that he didn't want a real answer. He, Exa- wanted, he wanted a packaged answer that could then be disseminated for how they want it to be wrapped up in this nice sport, cliche, narrative type thing. And like, he's a guy who likes to present stuff in, you know, we're taking a quick break for a vignette before we show you the last three holes of the Masters, and here's a cute (laughs) little two-minute package. You know, that's the way he presents these questions. And again, that's not what this moment requires. Right. You can't distill something that's about Black people dying into a soundbite.
0: Well, and I mean, they have been talking for two weeks about this movement without saying the word Black or the word racism. So... I'm curious to see what the message is that he got. But he, man, he was ready with the next question. That was,
1: (laughs) he was ready to move on, not letting that moment sit at all. After one of her early round matches, Naomi was interviewed on court by Renee Stubbs, who then kind of made this bingo card, kind of wondering out loud with gleeful anticipation, who would be next? I can't wait to see who's going to be your next mask.
0: And so I was watching and I was like, uh, I actually thought, like, am I being oversensitive here? And then I I saw the tweets started coming out and, you know, Renee got a lot of ridicule on social media for this and, and criticism. Well, this this criticism. is you as a
1: white person. Like, right. Understanding right. your limitations.
0: Because <laughs> I'm like, okay, am I just being too... Am I looking into it too much? But it made me feel so uncomfortable because it felt a little too positive, right? Like, I can't wait to see who's next on your mask. Naomi is documenting tragedy. These are these are real people with real families. And it means a lot that those names are being memorialized on Naomi Osaka's mask. And shortly after that, that very, very in- uncomfortable moment which Naomi handled well... They take her to Fountain Plaza, or that's what they call it, right? And Chris mckendry intros a video from some parents of slain black people, Trayvon Martin's mom, Sabrina Fulton, um, talking about how much Naomi's protest meant to them. And I just felt to spring that on her on, on live television was a lot. You know, it just, to me, it speaks to not understanding just how deep and fundamental these emotions are like I don't know if I would have been able to get through that on TV Naomi said she just got through and then cried later
1: <laughs> well it's one thing to do it to genuinely raise awareness it's another thing to do it to get the reaction from Naomi right you which w- is what that felt you like.
0: want her live reaction on TV it felt just a little bit gross to me
1: and so a lot of these questions and and the way this stuff is being dealt with feels like a sport almost a game which it's anything but. And let me tell you, intentions mean nothing. They mean nothing. How many times in the last few months do we have to say it? Your intentions mean nothing.
0: Nothing? I, like, well, it means nothing when you hit a ball at
1: a lion's person. It means nothing when the stakes are so high for black people. Yes, like but you're, if you're someone wh- has
0: good intentions, it might mean that they're able
1: to learn. How many times do you have to learn? How many free passes, this is what I'm saying, taken together, it's just not good enough. On the men's side. On a lighter note, I don't know if this is lighter actually, obviously the number one
0: seed did not make it to the final eight as we spoke about last week. You may have heard this. So we got a final eight and we were guaranteed a new major Titleist out of that group. Out of the eight, six of them were next-gen players. Five of them actually competed in next-gen finals over the past few years. The sixth, Alex Varev, was the number one seed in that first version of the next-gen finals, but he didn't actually play because that year he qualified for
1: the ATP World Tour finals. On the last episode, we said 14 men had a chance. The tennis was still ongoing, and by the time we recorded, there were still 14 men alive with a chance of winning the tournament. The final eight were Pablo Carreño Busta, who played Denis Shapovalov, Borna Chorich, who played Alexander Zverev, Andrei Rublev, who played Daniel Medvedev, Dominic Thiem, who played Alex Deminar. And of that group, you really were looking at, we were at least, Dominic Thiem and Medvedev.
0: Right. The previous runner-up, Daniel Medvedev, Dominic Thiem, who's been the heir apparent for a few years now, and... The trajectory of his career has been so interesting because it's not what it looked like, right? He was supposed to be the, the next Prince of Clay, but he wins his first Masters at Indian Wells. He takes Djokovic to five sets at the Australian Open this year. And now his first major is on a pretty quick hard court, which it just goes to show you
1: like all of the supposed weaknesses in his game he's found a way to chip away at. Karen Busta and Shapovalov. Dennis, to be frank, blows it in the fifth set after bageling Pablo in the fourth set. This may be a bit uncharitable to to Dennis, but going by his own words where he was shocked at Pablo's level in the fifth set because he was dead in the fourth. Like, come on, dude. This tells me that Dennis wasn't quite ready for primetime. This type of match with this type of with these types of stakes, five sets. Anybody who is watching tennis knows that a fourth set bagel does not mean that that player is going away. This speaks,
0: I think, to a lack of experience more than anything. Pablo has been here before. He knows how to conserve his energy through a long match. Dennis is young. This is his first quarterfinal. And I think he will take away a lot from this match.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a learning moment.
0: I mean... People have been talking about Dennis for years, about how entertaining he is, how explosive his game is. And I was, I haven't not been on the Dennis bandwagon, as you know. You haven't not? No. Or you no, haven't? I haven't. Okay. I've been a Dennis resistor. I guess I just didn't get him. His personality, his game, his bouncing through the legs, you know. You're, like, you're not excited for his latest rap output. Yes, the next one is with Corentin mm-hmm. Uh, the sequel to Night Train. But all that is to say I'm I'm starting to get the appeal of Dennis. He's exciting, and he's unpredictable and streaky, but he's capable of such incredibly high highs. But you can still see, like, he plays tennis like a young guy.
1: He will go for insane shots and his game shows glimpses of a galloping deer in the meadows. <laughs> but in other respects he's still a growing fawn. Right. So I hope
0: going forward he doesn't lose that excitement. And there's there's definitely joy in the way that he plays tennis, um, but he'll have to learn how to conserve his energy a little more.
1: Born at Church versus Alexander Zverev, I have here noted, quote, a complete mess of a match. Do not (laughs) watch. This was like the pusher Olympics. This was such a bizarre match. I watched more
0: of Alex Zverev than I ever have in my life. I watched pretty much all of his matches. And I'm sitting there like, what is going on? I don't know. There's not a whole lot to say about this match. No. It's been roundly savaged across media.
1: Um, It happened. Rublev played Medvedev. Rublev led 5-1 in the first set tiebreak and 6-3 before, to be frank, a choke. Medvedev pulled out a Houdini act, and Ruby just was not able to, to rest that initiative back. It wasn't a blowout, but it was still a, a straight set's loss. And after that tiebreak in the first set, we saw some serious banana abuse.
0: Dominic team destroyed Alex Diemenauer. He said, get that
1: mustache away from my face. A true US Open faux pas. How could you even stand to look at him? Wearing that. Um, this match, there's not really anything to say about this match. One thing I will say about this match is that it, it showed clearly that there was a gap in physicality between the two. Diminar has power, but the stamina and the physical strength and the physicality that's needed to grind out a five-set match against somebody like Dominic Team, he's just not there yet. Mm-hmm. And, and I think... Alex even admitted that in his post-match presser. Dominic is 27 years old. He has
0: worked on his fitness relentlessly. Like, he has built just an incredible body for tennis and for power tennis that it's going to take some years for someone like Alex to get there. He may not get there.
1: Especially when you start from such a slight frame. Yeah, yeah. In the semifinals, Zverev plays Kareño Busta, and Dominic team plays Medvedev.
0: I want to say that tennis Twitter in general, has been obsessed with the low quality of men's matches. <laughs> and I want to push back gently on it, because I don't disagree. But I want to suggest that maybe that's just not that important right now.
1: Um, I think that's a nice sentiment, and I think it's partially true. I think there are multiple mm. things true with taking in this men's event. And part of that is the context in which this event happened. You have the big three not playing. That's not true. You have Federer and Nadal not playing and Djokovic not making the second week. Right. You have this huge opportunity where three matches away from the final, we know that there will be a first-time slam champion on the men's side. And the first time that somebody outside of the big four or five, if you want to throw a stand in there, the ones who've been snapping up all the trophies, the first time in six years that one of them is not going to win. So these guys who've been hearing about this for so long, they're like, well, damn. Like, (laughs) all of a sudden, a tournament that went from being a no-brainer in Novak's pocket, the way it's being talked about, the narrative has been completely turned on its head. There's that to deal with. There is the fact that, to my mind, the way the subsequent rounds after Djokovic was disqualified was talked about laid bare all the hypocrisy with how the wta is talked about because we have these i mean litany string of matches that feature horrendous serving losing leads objectively boring tennis pusher tennis (laughs) all the things that have been used to discredit women's tennis are on full display in front of our eyes but We are working in overdrive to sell it in a different way. A luxury that is not afforded women's tennis. Mm -hmm. So if you were sitting there feeling aggrieved, petty about it, you'd be absolutely within your rights and not willing to give these men the good grace of allowing them the fact that this is happening within a pandemic. That your big moment, your big opportunity is happening alongside all these other things happening in your life, that you're sequestered in a bubble in New York City, that you played Cincinnati in New York, leading in mm-hmm. to the US Open, that-, that if you're, in the case of Alexander Zverev, your parents have COVID-19, that normally they're at the tournament, they weren't unable to come. You're dealing with a lot more emotional stress. I'm not sure what the overarching mm-hmm. point is here. I'm just saying that if you were... One of those who who wanted to go at them for the lack of lack of play, I get it. The thing is, when the women's side has bad semifinals,
0: it's said to be representative of women's tennis in general. That's, that's the difference. Men's tennis doesn't ever have to fight to justify its existence. But if I'm being honest, I don't care if the quality was low, for all of those reasons you said. This is a, a totally unusual tournament. It very well could have not occurred at all, We're in the middle of a pandemic, and I feel more laid back than I have in my entire life. Because it's just like, that's like a lesson of the pandemic for me. It's like, well, this is what we got. You know, enjoy it or don't. But I'm not going to get that upset about it either way. Um, That's how I felt about my faves losing.
1: When Serena lost, it was like, well, that sucks, but shit happens. That said, the woman showed up and turned out almost at every turn. They, they indeed at this did. Event.
0: But do they have to have a historically amazing tournament like this to justify how great women's tennis is? You know, it's like they're always sort of making the argument for women's tennis. Which is why I understand why people are complaining about the quality, is that
1: men's tennis is allowed to just exist. I get that when folks are out here and we are a lot of the times on this podcast championing women's tennis, even when Perhaps you're like, well, dude, that's a stretch.
0: Well, I mean, if you have two semifinals that last an hour each,
1: okay, that kind of sucks. But Fine, but it may at certain points come off patronizing. But again, the context, was this the first time that the ATP account has acknowledged the woman's winner of a slam? (laughs) Like the ATP tweeted a congratulations to Naomi Osaka and people were like, well, this is a first. If it's not a far as it's a rarity. Like, this is the context in which all this stuff happens. Yeah. Like, that's an innocuous thing. But the fact that it doesn't happen is pointed.
0: The The other thing that I wanted to say is that the ATP has done an excellent job with the whole next-gen thing. Like, the next-gen branding is on point. They, they show you these rankings, or the race that you can follow to the end of the year. They have next-gen finals, which, you know, has been hit and miss. But you generally know who... The next up and coming guys are because they've been branded on the women's side. A lot of those next gen people have already won majors, but I want to give credit where it's due. I think they've they've put in the marketing work to create this narrative of these are the next up and coming players who are going to help the ATP survive when the big three retire, which is soon. And we saw a bunch of those guys in the
1: quarterfinals Were the matches great. No, but they were there. And at this point, that's all that matters. Could they be great in the future? Could they be great at the same time against each other? Could they produce stellar semifinals (laughs) against each other in the future? Perhaps. (laughs) Does it give me, as a follower of men's tennis, concern about the state of men's tennis? Yes. (laughs) Right. So let's talk about the semifinals. Zverev versus Kareño Busta.
0: Zverev loses the first two sets, and he has never come back from two sets to love down. In any match, ever. But there is a first for everything. He managed to claw his way back against Pablo. Again, despite being long in five sets, it wasn't particularly exciting. (laughs) And you could say the same thing about the final. But team versus Medvedev, again, was surprisingly lackluster.
1: I expected this to be the marquee match Mm -hmm. of the week. Of all the matches that you would have expected to go to five sets, this would have been one of them right because you kind of expect Daniel to drive the tenor of the match just to... to
0: be able to play that patty cake tennis to annoy Dominic to neutralize some of his power
1: but instead we saw Medvedev making mistakes that we're not accustomed to yeah at moments we're not accustomed to but likely a function of pandemic tennis Medvedev afterwards said he was happy with his result if you had told him a couple months prior that he would have made the semifinals of the U.S. Open based on how he was playing at home in practice, he'd have been happy. And I think that that's what we saw. Uh, A Medvedev who wasn't quite at the level that we're accustomed to, which is fine, Mm, like you say. Something else I want to note here is, in a way, of course, it makes sense that these guys, when playing each other in these moments, would present somewhat lackluster tennis. Team playing Novak probably brings a different energy to the first couple sets of that final. You, when you have nothing to lose, when when the weight of expectation is not on your shoulders, it presents a, a different dynamic. But
0: team goes into this final for the first time being the favorite in a major final. And people were saying that Zverev just doesn't have anything to hurt him with, that these holes in his game are only going to be exacerbated by the nerves of being in a Grand Slam final. And those first two sets were certainly not the
1: case because I- dominic showed up a completely different person folks were wondering if it had to do with the ankle or achilles he showed signs of injury at the end of his semifinal match and afterward he told us he told everybody that it was really just being tight it was nerves yeah for two whole sets of a grand slam final dominic team was unable to find Anything near the game that he had been accustomed to for the six previous rounds and all 28 exhibitions that he played in <laughs> during quarantine.
0: I mean, it was, it was wild because across the board, people were speculating if he was injured because he was so bad. He seemed emotionally disengaged. He wasn't moving anywhere near where he normally moves. His strokes just didn't have a whole lot of pop behind them. Experts in the field (laughs) were speculating that he was injured. And this is not to take away from the incredibly high level that Alexander was showing in the first probably two and a half sets. He has this quality where if he's playing well, all of those weaknesses in his game seem to kind of disappear. He's had serving yips. Maybe not
1: disappear, but he's able to cover them better.
0: Well, right. But like his serve wasn't an issue in the first two sets. His net game has improved a lot.
1: Like, a lot, a lot. Do you remember when we used to mock... We used oh, to mock him pretty badly for that.
0: And it was bad. Mm-hmm. But in this match, he ventured to the net 66 times, won 43 of those points. That shows you that he is so much more confident finishing points at the net. His volleys are not always beautiful. They're not the best in the game. But the level of improvement is crazy. So the first half of this match... You saw one player playing excellent tennis, the other not. There is some beauty to a match if one player is just kind of zoning. If you don't like that player, it's probably very difficult to watch. But he gets a break in the third, Dominic gets it back, and you see the momentum shift. And following that, I don't think you see a lot of excellent tennis from either of them at the same time. But
1: there was definitely a lot of sputtering and fighting and... So what we're saying here is that Alexander Zverev had a two sets to love and a break lead in a Grand Slam final and was unable able to close it out against an opponent that was playing well below his best. Correct. That is one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that Dominic Thiem did what
0: no man has ever done in the Open era at the US Open and came back from two sets to love in a final. The last person to do that was Pancho Gonzalez in 1949. So in the history of the U.S. Open, that has never been done. In the U.S. Championships, it was last done in 1949. It's been done at other slams. It has. But the last time it's been done in any slam was 2004 when Gaston Gaudio beat Correa at Roland Garros.
1: And so the, the net result, the end narrative that we land on, which likely would have been different if it were a women's final, is a triumph of the competitive spirit of Dominic team.
0: <laughs> it was, I mean, it was really a crawl to the finish line by both of them. In the fifth set tiebreaker, Alexander Zverev hit two double faults. You know, he served for the match. Then Dominic served for the match. Then we get to a tiebreak. It was. Um, it doesn't have to be heroic to be a victory. Mm-hmm. You just have to to win that last point it doesn't have to be five sets to be great and just because it's five sets doesn't mean it's great but again i don't really care if it's great it happened what happened it happened and dominic <laughs> team
1: is a, a grand slam winner i just hope that we make a conscious effort to be that kind going forward with with the women's tour mm. that's all i'm gonna leave it at that
0: yeah in doubles vera Zvonareva is a grand slam champion again With Laura Zygamunt, they beat Melikar and Zhu. For all the talk of mothers at this tournament, Vera is the only mom
1: who won a title. Mate Pavic and Bruno Suarez defeated Kulov and Mektić. Pavic gets his fourth major title, two in men's doubles and two in mixed doubles. Suarez gets his fifth and is now a two-time US Open champion in both men's and mixed doubles. These two, Suarez and Pavic, if you recall, they switched pretty successful teams about a year mm-hmm. and a half or two years ago. Suarez was very successful with Jamie Murray, and Pavic had a successful pairing with Oliver Marat. Jamie Murray hasn't had subsequent success like this, but you know, good for these two guys that they've they found each other.
0: I see next that you've put on the agenda cringe moments. And I thought we were going to be super positive. We I had listed all these things that made us laugh throughout the tournament or things that were enjoyable.
1: Listen, it, it's just the way it is at this point. <laughs> I didn't make these moments happen. Yeah, We'll end with the laughs and the cool Okay, stuff. okay, okay. One of the cringe moments happened when Serena Williams and Svatana Pirankova were being introduced before their quarterfinal match. And <laughs> Serena was introduced as... And mother of Olympia. And Svetlana was introduced as mother of Alexander. And this is when you really, if you didn't know, you knew that this stuff had gotten way out of control. We previously talked about how the mom thing, the mom narrative was entirely too much. This was one specific incident where they were just doing way too much.
0: Do you know John Isner's child's name, for example?
1: Taylor Fritz's? Uh, no, you don't. I mean, we don't want to go a hundred percent in the other direction where we don't <laughs> say that it is actually a remarkable thing that a high-profile elite tennis player can give birth and come back. Like what what's what's happened has actually changed the trajectory of women's careers in tennis.
0: Yes. So talk about how difficult it is to overcome the many many barriers in the way of achieving, not only you know, the physical barriers of going through that sometimes trauma of giving birth, but the structural barriers in all of the women on the WTA who don't want you to have a protected ranking, for example.
1: There you go. Uh, Commentators and journalists had a a truly wretched two weeks on air and on Twitter. (laughs) Not all of them, but there were some glaring uh, oopses. And then oops, they did it again. Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of times, the thing is, with a lot of journalists, it's an oops, I did it, and I'm doing it again because I want you to understand why you're wrong and I'm right.
1: Who had a, a really just cringe-worthy time and go of it was Christopher Clary. Truly bizarre stuff. So he tweeted
0: the day of the Serena Vika semifinal a picture of Margaret Court saying, what did what did it say? The one that has 24. Yes, and then he decided to retweet himself during the match while Serena was losing. <laughs> so he got roundly savaged on Twitter. And then the next day tweeted something like, this has inspired a lot of heated discussion. I, I guess you could call it heated. Uh, and he said, the funny thing is that Margaret doesn't even care about 24. She cares about her total Grand Slam number of 62. So what you've just told me is that Margaret Court herself is not that interested in her 24 record, but it is you who keeps reminding us that it is supposedly
1: important. That was a self-own, if I've ever seen one. And it, it kept going on and on in many different variations. We talked about the Renee Stubbs thing with the masks on Court. While that has already been covered on the show, I do want to mention that it was a stunning turnaround. Because Renee got near universal and deserved praise for her handling of the Djokovic default.
0: Yes. The
1: thing is, Renee is actually very good on TV.
0: I've always liked her commentary. That was just a a pretty big misstep on a big
1: stage. To our minds, both the praise and the uh, criticisms were well earned. (laughs) Let me tell you, the British journals, they're a special bunch. Mike Dixon tweeted after Coco Goff's loss that it was a major blow to the WTA field, women's field, that was already low on star power. A truly
0: bizarre day. (laughs) It's true. A lot of the top 30 women pulled out, more so than the men. But I think the proof is in the pudding here that the women's side certainly didn't fail to, to impress and create headlines, and... I mean, you went after him twice.
1: I mean, wasn't once enough? The men had Djokovic, Chilich, and Murray as previous slam winners still left in the field. And Chilich, let's be real, is not a contender at the the moment. The women had a bunch, and I mean, a bunch of slam winners pull out, and they still had 10 remaining in the field. So when you're talking about. They also had big stars. Yeah. So we're talking about your poor judgment as to what star power is and your bias as to what star power is. Are you saying that so two tweets wasn't enough, you gotta go in on them again? Yes. <laughs> I was really annoyed by it. Because this is a kind of like casual sexism that just you know, it it's everywhere. His colleague, Stu Fraser, he uh came for Billie Jean King, saying that she wasn't singing the same tune when Carlos Ramos was pilloried in 2018 Mm. that the rules are the rules that Billy is talking about with Novak Djokovic now. Like what were you saying back then? Chanda Uh, Rubin uh, tweeted, imagine coming for Billie Jean King when you know she's right about a particular incident, but you still want to express your bitterness about a totally different and unrelated event. Fortunately for the women's tour, BJK never listened to men telling her to be quiet. (laughs) At Stu Fraser, shake my head.
0: You know, in our previous episode, we did not mention Serena at all with relation to the Novak default. And we did that for a reason. Yeah. Right? Because we knew those comparisons were going to come and we decided not to engage in it. Some opportunists decided to, to play with that shit. And anybody who follows tennis as much as Stuart Fraser does knows that coaching is rampant People were coaching at this US Open with nobody in the stands on international television. The
1: umpire could hear them coaching and it wasn't called. You know, like. He responded to Chanda saying, Not sure why I told BJK to be quiet. Am I not allowed to express an opinion on her views on the application of rules in a previous match? Which I don't believe is as unrelated and different as you make it out to be. Great admiration for what BJK has done for women's tennis. It's like, oh my God, thank you so much. Oh my God, oh you, my God you, you you admire Billie Jean King? You Jane appreciate K? what one of the greatest pioneers <laughs> of anything has ever done? Of anything. Oh, my my stars. And so <laughs> Chanda quote tweets again and says, Something you seem to not consider, colon, your opinions and beliefs could also be wrong. It's naive to think every rule is enforced uniformly. You are entitled to your opinion, But the other incident was two years ago and already litigated. You should consider moving on. And you know what? That was that on that. We're going to move on because Miss Chanda
0: really said it all. And she also made me think hard about myself and the world because she is the poet philosopher of Tennis Channel. She said, did you ever consider that your opinion could be wrong? That is such a lesson to me, to you, to everyone. We say a lot of stuff. Yeah. And some of it's going to be
1: wrong. Mm-hmm. We talked It's about, a challenge. We talked about Tom Rinaldi and the post-final on-court mess. Pam Schreiber, I don't think I've seen somebody so repeatedly ratioed in such a short period of time. It was an incredible output <laughs> the last few days. A, a few... Strange takes on Naomi's mentality
0: and relating it to the 2018 final. Poor Pam in the basement. Twitter
1: was just not having it. Not one bit. It did not deter her, though. <laughs> <laughs> and then lastly, in well, not lastly. Two more quick things in this cringe moment stuff. Uh, Goran Ivaniyevich with his comments on <laughs> Novak Djokovic's... Uh... I feel like Novak is the only person on Team Djokovic who,
0: like, gets what happened he's been he's been remorseful he said he understands the default that those the rules please don't attack the line judge because it's not her fault and then she was attacked afterward anyway right but then like everybody else in his camp has the most atrocious takes i think it
1: you know it reflects well on him that he's said the right things so far in the moment the audio that we're able to hear of him trying to Ooh,
0: girl, that was that, that not, was not good.
1: good. Not good. Not good, but at the same time, I understand the panic right. and wanting to try and diffuse the situation. Mm-hmm. That, I, that's a natural response. Again, this is not an absolution, and I want to push back on
0: the use of accidental yes. in, the, in a lot of mm-hmm. this because yeah. it's not, you know, there are different types of accidents. It wasn't intentional, but that doesn't mean it was an accident. An accident would be like, oh, the ball slipped out of your hands. He intentionally hit the the ball. Unfortunately,
1: it collided with someone. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And again, something that was not unforeseen given the history.
0: But Goran Ivanevich was a tennis player. He's done this. He knows the rules. I don't understand why the rules are unjust. If you unintentionally injure uh, someone who works on court by something you did with full volition, which is what happened, why shouldn't you be defaulted? This is what's happened to people who've done it in the past. But Alijah
1: Berenay the week before. <laughs> yeah. Well. Anyway, this this is a total mess, mm. and just uh, wow. wow. Ryan Harrison, ranked in the nether regions of the ATP, came for Ben Rothenberg this fortnight in the Notes app. One of many who had uh, daggers flying all over Ben's Ben's mentions <laughs> <laughs> these last two weeks. Okay,
0: so Ben. Shared some factual knowledge about Pablo Carreño Busta. I found it mean-spirited, but t- t- a point of information was that it was true. Did it feel like a little bit of a a gang-up? Like a little... I mean, there's still some
1: editorializing with the facts exactly. as well.
0: So a lot of tennis players, Brian Harrison included, felt that Ben was belittling Carreño's accomplishments. So I got that. And then Nick Kyrgios chimed in with some idiotic ramble, which made, you know, the association of Ben with Nick
1: made them both look worse.
0: Nobody tagged in Nick, but he just appeared.
1: Yeah. Well, to me, what happened here is that this is the rent come due for, <laughs> <laughs> for a lot of grievances that folks have with Ben in the past, a lot of them justified.
0: So in the past, if you have sort of, Enjoyed or encouraged the curios mess, which I think there's merit to that. This is the the chickens coming home to roost, so to mm-hmm. speak. Even if you didn't incite this one, you're going to have to take this L. Because Nick went on to say some mean-spirited and totally incorrect things about how if he took away Clay, Pablo's career would be nothing, which is obviously a lie because he's more successful on hard courts. Brian
1: Harrison, not having it. Listen, the... You like to say all the time, the enemy of your enemy is not your friend. So while you may just absolutely despise Ben Rothenberg, you now have Ryan Harrison coming out of the woodwork and talking about Ben's out here coming for people for their political beliefs and all this other stuff, just casually throwing in this other stuff in that message. (gasps) And you're going to be like, you know what? Speak the truth, Ryan. Speak it. Oh, that
0: was a word. No, no, girl. A lot of people out here on Twitter have a lot of dislike. I would say extreme dislike for Ben. But if you're going to use the occasion to gas up Ryan Harrison, of all people, I don't know, I feel like you have to reassess. Like if you wanna say something about a journalist you don't like, say it with your chest. Don't use this make America
1: great again, mean-spirited dude to do your work for you. Now for some moments of levity things that made us laugh, or some pretty cool moments at the Mm. U.S. Open.
0: After the last episode, there was all this stuff that I wanted to talk about that we didn't get to that was positive and fun and light. And I feel like we have spent a lot of time on the serious. In the first week, one of the most enjoyable things was Amanda Anisimova's cursing getting picked up on the encore mic. It was incredible. It was a crescendo until the F-word climax. She said, what the actual fuck? (laughs) And that was captured loudly and clearly on the mic. Oh, and Vika Azarenka got caught on the mic. See, when you have no one in the stadium, you can hear everything. Mm -hmm. And she says, so fucking shit. (laughs)
1: About her poor Serena. Yes, yes. This was against Serena in the semifinals, right? In that first set that was not
0: that great. And the commentators always have to apologize. It's like, just enjoy it.
1: Kim Clijsters, we didn't really talk about her in the last episode, which was a big oversight. Mm. Her first set against Alexandrova was incredible. That was some hitting. Like the sound that came off her racket. Those were, literally I just laughed. That's Mm. all I could do in watching it. Unsustainable for her because Alexandrova, as it turns out, is a talent in her own right. And was able to weather that storm and Kim not quite being there physically just yet, lost in three sets, but that first Mm. set was a standout highlight moment for me.
0: The players being able to watch each other, I know this has been talked about a lot, but it was very cool. All these players in their suites eating, watching their peers, and it just felt like these professionals, these people who are amazing at their craft, got to sit there and appreciate their colleagues, excel at what they
1: do. I'm sure during a regular event, They could watch, they could go and find somewhere to go sit, but you can't do it without interruption, like in this situation, where you you can just literally chill out. You have to eat, you have to relax, you have to do all these things, and oh, you can do it while you're watching Victoria Azarenka play Serena Williams in the semifinal. Like, amazing. Sophia Kennan was probably the
0: most avid tennis watcher. Even after she lost, she was out there watching tennis for days. Alex Zverev was the king of leisure throughout these two weeks, got to kick up his feet, literally. Uh, he never wears a shirt,
1: and he, I mean, he looked like he was on vacation. He, he was caught wearing a shirt one time, and that was one of the upsets of the week.
0: <laughs> he did actually look like he was on, like, an oceanfront balcony in a luxury hotel. Did you hear there were no spectators at this event?
1: What? Yeah, there were there were no fans at the US they, Open.
0: The commentators barely mentioned it, but there was no one watching. What was it like
1: playing this match in round mm. one
0: without any yeah. fans? I guess we'll never know.
1: What was um, it like playing this match in round two without, still <laughs> without any fans?
0: I rather enjoyed it. To be totally honest with you, I did not miss the fans in the stands. My introverted self was like, you know, I could really do this again. Uh, I understand that's not sustainable, and that would be horrible for a lot of you to hear because you probably go to live tennis all the time and love it. But I personally like watching sports in silence. (laughs) I know
1: that's not a realistic thing. A couple of the other things on the list, I just realized we've talked about them before. Mm. So we'll, we'll save... We'll just do the really big one here, the one that gave us endless laughs these last few days. Mm -hmm. Which really came out of nowhere, apropos of
0: nothing. So Serena Williams was on Xena Garrison and Chanda Rubin's show Game Set Chat. So in the midst of Serena talking about her career and, and how she hopes to be remembered, this zinger comes out of
1: literally nowhere. It took a turn. You're listening to Serena, and you're like, okay, okay, okay. And then, my God, my Lord, as Whitney loved to say. (laughs) This will be a little bit of a dramatic reading. You don't remember maybe title 18, but you remember those moments that make an impact and make people say, oh, she was more than a champion on the court. And that's what I always said. I don't really care about my results on the court for me It's more of what is the purpose of your life. So that's why a lot of this stuff really genuinely doesn't affect me. And when it turns out that some people actually are doing drugs, the truth comes out. Chanda and Zina start to laugh because I'm sure they were completely caught off guard. (laughs) Zina starts to talk and then Serena talks over her and finishes and then they get caught. And then they get banned for not long enough. Like, what? It w- I've watched it several times, and I still
0: can't figure out where it came from. <laughs> but Chanda was so shocked that she exploded into laughter. She couldn't help it. And then she tried to reel it back in.
1: If you haven't watched that, I should say, if you are not a Maria Sharapova fan <laughs> and you're- in- Well,
0: how do you know that's who she was talking about? <laughs> she did not name names
1: oh my god I, I find that highly offensive what is the purpose of your life so that that's why a lot of this stuff really it genuinely doesn't affect me but if you've been out here taking drugs and you get caught for those drugs <laughs> and then you get sentenced for those drugs but not long enough I love she just
0: like brushed past you don't remember maybe title 18 and I'm thinking like Uh, not everyone has 18 titles, Serena.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Including the people you're talking to right now. (laughs) We were supposed to do a little bit of talking about what's next. French Open promising to be a whole nother mess. Oh my god. That is going to be a whole nother mess. And we're going to have to do a French Open preview episode soon. So, uh, this deep into the recording, that's going to have to wait. Rome is happening right now. And then Madrid, and then the French Open. At some point, we'll talk about how much we've been enjoying the verses. Oh my God, I know we've oh been God. wanting to talk. Wants to talk about the Brandon Monica one. We just had Gladys Knight and Patti LaBelle last night. We'll have to save that for another day. So thank you for sticking with us. That's a wrap. That's a bubble wrap. That is the end of the 2020 U.S. Open, a tournament that we we did not think was going to happen for months now. That's been our position. Mm-hmm. They they did it. We are now. Onto Europe for the clay swing yeah. in September and October.
0: And that's a wrap on the bubble, because you're not getting another bubble for the rest of this season. No. By the, the looks of it. The the pretense
1: of bubbling is, it's no longer I think, a thing.
0: Exemplified most by Victoria Azarenka playing in the final on Saturday and arriving in Rome on Sunday. She will play Venus Williams in her first round match. We, we are not getting into all that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John.
0: I'm James at Elliot JMR.
1: Two L's, two T's. The Body Surf is on all social media platforms at At The Body Surf, except for Snapchat and maybe a few others. But anyway, At The Body Surf, you can find us wherever. Thanks for listening. Till next time.